0: You've made it down precisely in terms of beats and format and structure and all this bullshit that you have made, like, quantifiable, and now all these screenwriters are going like, God damn, these producers are really going to just create a program to spit out the scripts that we've already turned into a fucking program. Like, (laughs) shame on all of you, you know? The program already exists. Right! You know, know, it's clear that one of these things couldn't write Taxi Driver, but, you know... uh, uh ip you know a big uh, marvel movie like yeah it can you know you know the and i'm sitting there going like yeah the captain crunch movie or whatever right (laughs) like it
1: can spit out the first draft who would you cast as captain crunch uh mark ruffalo Mm. (laughs) mark ruffalo's not bad i feel like paul giamatti would make a good captain crunch (laughs) paul giamatti would be a very good
0: captain Crunch if he was still alive Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> yeah. I was
2: like, "Paul Giamatti died." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I completely thought yeah. That too.
0: Yeah. I was like, "Oh <laughs> shit!" Breaking news. Breaking news. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, I guess the here's my question: like, how how old do you think Captain Crunch is? <laughs> well, I mean, he's a like, captain
0: in the Navy,
2: you know. <laughs> so yeah. sure, but is is the movie like?
0: Young, 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 Crunch, <laughs> young, young Crunch. Or... Yeah, he starts off as an ensign, you know, and he's got to like work his How way did up. He becomes the captain. <laughs> yeah, dude. That's well. It's always the first one's always the origin story. <laughs> so it's like he's fresh out of the academy.
1: You know? Well, I, now I'm imagining the Captain Crunch movie is like the long gray line. His full life from, from birth yeah. to the- A fifty years tale. Yeah.
2: <laughs> It'll be some kind of like birthday or uh like graduation day or
1: something, you know. And yeah,
0: they- they're they're christening a new ship. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah.
0: They're breaking a milk bottle over the front of it.
1: Well, I like the idea of the Bond-esque title sequence where after they christen the boat and shatter the glass, the shards of glass turn into pieces of Captain Crunch that are, like, raining down the frame. As the song plays. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Does the serial exist in this universe? (laughs) It's God? That's it's a question you. for the AI, Sherman. <laughs> it's
2: not a question for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, come on. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder.
0: Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, wow. oh, boy, the truth this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> It's
2: hot, it's hot out there, we all walk out there, very, very, very hot.
0: Open fire! Hello folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, my name is Andrew Stasoulis, and I am joined here with... Eric Marsh. And... Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a topic for the week and the other two hosts are tasked with bringing films to the table that meet the topic address the topic buck up against the topic uh it was my turn to pick this week we just had our 100th episode uh come out and, uh, you know, I had to come up with something following that. And, and it was a, a really great time. We, we looked back on on all the movies we'd watched, the movies we liked, the movies we didn't like. It was a really good time just sort of thinking about where we'd been. And so when I had to come up with, uh, you know, a path forward, the next topic to follow something like that, I uh, I... I kind of struggled a little bit, partly because I forgot that it was my turn to pick, (laughs) but also, you know, just because where do you go after something like that? And it hit me just at the very end of our 100th episode special. Let's blow it all up. Let's start anew. So I asked the boys to bring me films along that theme of rebirth a new beginning a new foot forward genesis if you will and that's what they brought me on a certain (laughs) level um i uh i'm very excited to talk about the films i i think there's a lot of a lot of stuff we're gonna have a lot of fun picking apart. Uh, so without further ado, we should just bring them out so we can get into it. Both films, normally we start on the earlier film, but as I was just informed by my my colleagues, both films came out the same year. So uh, I think we more or less flipped a coin and we're going to start with Ryan. Ryan, tell us about the film you selected.
1: Okay. So when I got the theme, I was excited. I love a nice open-ended prompt. feels like it gives us a lot of flexibility. And the more I was reflecting on the theme of rebirth new beginnings genesis i started realizing that just about any movie i could think of i could make a convincing argument for for rebirth and i was like okay okay i gotta figure out how to like actually handle this um and i think what marsh did was very smart and it's not what i did and i'll let him talk about that later but by like picking different specific things of like rebirth like a a specific topic that relates to instead i was just combing through my watch list and thinking ah which one of these synopses kind of fits what I'm looking for and I'll just go with the movie I want to watch the most and I was very excited that uh, a film that was on my watch list that has been there for quite a while by a filmmaker I really admire uh, did sort of fit, and I'm I'm happy with my pick, and I'm excited to especially compare it to Marsha's film because let me tell you, it is a Woo! radical juxtaposition, and we we love that shit. So it may be a rebirth for us, you know, starting afresh, another hundred episodes, but it's still it's got the core values at the, at the center of this double feature, you know, the radical juxtaposition. So, the film I ended up going with is from 2002. It is called. Kanathil Muthamital, which is also translated as A Peck on the Cheek. That's what it's more known uh, outside of its country of India, where it was produced. It is directed by Mani Ratnam, who is one of my favorite filmmakers. And I've only had a chance to see, I think, three of his other films before this one, but He's a really remarkable filmmaker who makes films that are populist in nature and also in their style. They reflect a lot of common characteristics of the cinema from the region, but he often has a political crisis as the backdrop, or he's still injecting harsh social realities into his very humanist stories. And to me, it's a very fascinating blend his type of cinema. He's specifically known for really revolutionizing Tamil language cinema. And we've done Telugu cinema on the pod before, which is Tollywood. Tamil language cinema is actually Kaliwood, which is named after uh, a neighborhood in Madras that I'm forgetting the name of. But that is, that's where like the industry is sort of localized. And this film is very much about the Tamil experience and it tells the story. Of, wow, I mean, it's sort of like, where should I start? I think I'll just focus on the rebirth element of it, and we'll sort of talk about the other narrative threads that kind of go forward and backwards in time around it. But really, it's about a young girl who, on her ninth birthday, learns that she's adopted. And not only uh, was she adopted, but her mother was a refugee from another country, and they no longer have any contact with her. Her mother is from Sri Lanka. And... Upon learning this, she, you know, attempts in various ways to sort of reconnect with her mother. She tries running away on her own, and eventually her family sort of caves in and decides, okay, we're going to take you. We're going to go to Sri Lanka on a journey together. We're going to enter (laughs) into an active war zone, Uh, the the family, uh, all together, because this is taking place during the backdrop of the Sri Lankan Civil War. And upon arriving there, After following a bit of trail of breadcrumbs, you know, this is again, this is very broadly talking about the whole film. She learns that her mother is a revolutionary of the Tamil Tigers. So I thought, you know, I'm thinking, okay, you learn you're adopted. Rebirth, totally fresh outlook on life. But in various respects, this is a movie of a series of rebirths as people are leaving their home country and then returning to it. People who start new families together you know starting new chapters in their lives adopting children all around all these various threads as politically engaged as it is it's still a populist indian production and it's full of song and dance it is full of really stunning cinematography and also dizzying cinematography. There are a few sequences in this film that I thought I was going to barf uh, because of how much the camera is moving. And it does feel very much in line with Mani Ratnam's other films that I've seen. I've seen Nyakon, which is really cool. That's about it's sort of like the Indian godfather. He's got another film called Se that has maybe my favorite quote in all of movies, where Shah Rukh Khan is talking to his love on the phone, who is also a terrorist, and he says, isn't our love more important than your terrorism. And I feel like that line (laughs) of dialogue is representative of what the cinema of Mani Ratnam feels like. And I would encourage people to check out his other movies. Uh, This one's on Netflix. It looks really great, and I'm excited to talk about it. So that's Kanathil Muthamatil, or A Peck on the Cheek.
0: Thank you, Ryan. Marsh, how about your film? Yes, well...
2: I, You know, I was, like Ryan said, I was trying to th- come at it from a, a variety of angles, and at a certain point, I just got it in my head that I wanted to do an amnesia film, you know? Because that's sort of like a classic thing in the history of movies that's almost like funny and unrealistic, right? This idea of, yeah, someone who... Uh, has no sense of self and has to uh, sort of discover that. And and that led me to a filmmaker who I've almost brought on the pod like four or five times in a variety of contexts. And I was thinking about what Ryan said uh, on the Gauntlet 100 about uh, our Finnish double feature, you know, of the white reindeer and the long kiss goodnight. And I was just thinking, all right, it's time. You know, it's time to make uh, Finland a, a proper sister country, you know, to uh the gauntlet you know by bringing a third Finnish film uh to the pod <laughs> um and yeah this is this is one that i kind of immediately thought of in terms of this sort of like genesis or or rebirth and uh yes the film is mise vila Menesita, the man without a past from 2002 written directed and produced by aki Karismaki, the beloved Finnish auteur. Um, This film is maybe one of his most successful, oddly enough. Uh, It was nominated for uh, Best Foreign Language Oscar, the only Finnish film ever. Uh, to have that honor, really? it won the grand yeah yeah, uh, and it won the grand prix at the 2002 Cannes Film Festival, uh, and this is a film I saw a very long time ago uh, in my 20s when I was working it out. Obsession, uh, I became obsessed with Kerasiaki. You know, it was like the perfect time. You know, I was just like living in my 20s you know you love cinema about losers and bums and people drinking too much you know when you're also doing that kind of thing Um, and so I've always had an affinity for him so I wanted to uh, to revisit this one which is uh, about a man played by Marku Petola who arrives in Helsinki on a train only to fall asleep in a park and be beaten uh, basically to death Uh, in the park by some punks with baseball bats. And in fact, he is pronounced dead uh, at the hospital before just all of the sudden uh, springing up like nothing ever happened, you know? Um, Unfortunately, uh, he doesn't remember who he is or was. Um, He does have a a sort of general understanding of the world, but uh, his identity is completely gone. And from there, he uh, descends. No, maybe that's not the right word. Uh, He journeys into, uh, you know, Aki Karasmaki land, where he starts living in a, a shipping container village with a bunch of other Finnish legends, you know, and, and a lot of nice people as well, and some not so nice people. But uh, yeah, really, it's just the tale of this guy who doesn't know who he is, and he uh, meets a bunch of different people, including, of course, uh, Katie Atunen as Irma, the Salvation Army uh, worker, uh, who sort of falls in love with him and gives him. Him a reason to live, and of course, she is a familiar face uh, to the cinema of Karasmaki. She's in every one of his movies, so uh, here she is again, serving soup uh, in the Salvation Army line. Um, there's a lot of other stuff that happens too, and I think it's you know uh, a film that does thrive around the edges, the random characters, the the, the jokes, etc. cetera. Um, if you are unfamiliar with Garismaki's work, um, you know, I guess a, a common touchstone is, is Jarmusch, um, because they actually did have overlap, you know, um, in terms of actors and Night on Earth and all that. But um, really, he has sort of like the narrative economy of Brisson. It's very like simple uh, and to the point, um, but it's also very poetic like ozu you know it's like a cinema of like like i always think when i think of his movies i think of someone like cooking something in close-up on like a hot plate you know like just these sort of like random inserts of objects you know and his characteristic use of rock and roll which uh we'll certainly get into but uh yeah that's uh that's the man without a past thank you marsh
0: um yeah, these are very interesting choices, very interesting choices. Obviously, um you know, we we did a lot of reflecting on it in our one hundredth episode about, you know, um, how uh, how delightful it can be when we're we're surprised by where our our uh, our comrades take. The prompt for the week, and I, I, I have to say, I was I was very surprised. I mean, I intentionally left it open to see what you two would dig up. And while these were um, very unexpected for me, I think they also are um, very, and I don't mean this in a bad way, very obvious choices for both of you <laughs> and your cinematic sensibilities. Sure. So. Par for the course, and I mean that in the best way possible. I think it's a perfect way to kick off the next 100 <laughs> um, by leaning in, if you will, to who we are and what we love. Um, obviously, I well, I shouldn't say obviously. I'm quite familiar with Korsmaki's work, and I'm a big fan of him, but, but uh, very unfamiliar with the director of the film that Ryan selected um, totally off my radar. So it was um, a very interesting experience for me. Ryan has a lot more, I think, um, you know, he spent a lot more time than I have in the Indian cinema. So I'm going to... In India. And literally (laughs) the country... of India. Uh, So I'm definitely going to be leaning on you throughout this episode a bit, Ryan, Uh, though I am somewhat familiar with certain Indian films. Really, there's a lot in here that kind of at times made me wonder, was it by design or am I not connecting something? You know, am am I missing something here? And I think there's so much going on that uh, I'm really looking forward to diving into it. But I would say right off the bat, you know, uh, both of these films do, in your introductions, I think you both did a really wonderful job of sort of laying out the the case for Rebirth. Um, I think in, in Marsh's pick, Man Without a Pass, to me, it's it's very obvious what's going on here. But I think we're going to have to pick it apart a little bit more in your film, Ryan. I mean, I'll put it this way. To me, I see that idea of a person sort of suddenly learning who they are and feeling as if they're starting from ground zero, from they're starting from scratch. But I think the biggest departure in the characters' journeys, both of them, towards this new identity is that in Man Without a Past, we have a character solely moving forward in that journey. Mm. And in your film, a character whose rebirth is sending them to the past, is sending them backwards on a certain level. Um, now, again, obvious big, big departures in terms of performance style, tone, <laughs> color, yeah. everything, which I think we're going to get into. But for me, I think that's that's the first biggest thing that I see in, in these films is that one is about a, a person that is uh, looking ahead and the other, a person who is looking or trying to
1: look backwards and the difficulties that they are both going to encounter along the way. Right. I think that one of the things that connected both of these films for me in an effort to try and bring them together, thinking about the idea of rebirth, was also both of them having an event that shakes up their lives to the point where they are no longer on the same path and that they have to move forward on paths that are either parallel or in totally different directions from the lives they were previously living. And by moving forward, that doesn't negate the fact that that could mean moving backwards as the character in my film does. She is moving into the past. But I was thinking about the idea of rebirth too, that by the end of both of these films, without really getting ahead of ourselves, it's interesting then how those paths do intersect with the original paths, if you think about it. Like, is a rebirth ever fully a rebirth? Like, how can you completely lose every part of yourself and totally start from scratch? Like, it it isn't necessarily something that can be cut and dry and a full rebirth. Like, it, can it even happen? Is it possible? I think both of these movies are asking that question. How much can you give up from what you already had?
2: Mm-hmm. I think it's important to... Then that it's like in the flashbacks, it's the, what do we see? Well, we see like the genesis of this family as well, right? So even like when we go into the the past, we're just experiencing like another rebirth just on different levels. And you could even apply that to, to Shama as well, the, the original birth mother, um, who goes through her own sort of, you know, attempts at um, starting a new And uh, in her case, then, yeah, going back.
1: Yeah, because it's an interesting structure, because I should note the film does start (laughs) with the original mother, Shama, uh, living in Sri Lanka as the crisis is developing. And then after she gets married, the the intro of the film is romantic uh, in certain respects. She she does get married. She does become pregnant. Then crisis develops. She has to flee. She's a refugee. She gives birth in India and then the film moves forward many years, well, at least nine nine years. It moves forward nine years uh, to yeah. when her daughter, Amudha, turns nine. And in a sense, then, I guess that's the present of the film, if we want to even treat the beginning of the film as the past. And yes, as Marsh has alluded to, after we spend some time getting to know Amudha, her world prior to the rebirth, when she does learn that she was adopted, we do also have a long interlude back in the past when her adopted parents then also meet and bond uh, and get married because of her presence in their lives when they decide to adopt her. And in a way, that's a rebirth for them. And that inner, because those interludes in the past are long, especially the one with her adopted parents, I was kind of shocked <laughs> at how long that went I, on I for. thought you would be sweating going, like, is this movie ever
2: going to be about the daughter, you know, <laughs> like at a certain point,
1: right? No, like... so I checked in advance because I, like, pulled it up on Netflix and I was, like, skimming through. I'm like, okay, is this, like, mostly the girl? Is this, like, her on a journey? And I'm like, okay, it is. Like, most of this movie is that. But, yeah, I did kind of have that thought when it was in the past. I was like, man... It's almost we're almost hitting an hour into this movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it, has, it it's
2: a big cast, and it, it you know in, in a longish movie, it like gets to you get to know a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, same can be said, I think, for Kerasmaki in a much shorter time. But uh, I think too, Andy, like thinking about the departures too. Is like well, I think that one of the key differences is one of class, right? At least in the sense that Amuda, as she's been adopted, she has this very like very cushy middle class life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, her mother's like a TV anchor, and her father's a writer and an engineer. Uh, she is the coolest girl at school. We learn this in a very long musical number about how how fucking cool she is, <laughs> um, and like when when you know they they decide to disclose this information to her um she has people around her who can be like well yeah we do know we do know a little bit you know uh whereas you know our guy from the the man without a past he's in the credits as m but i don't think anyone actually calls him that so i don't know like even what to call him Mm. other than we do learn his real name at a certain point but Bearing lead, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. he you know him being just like this worker, you know, or at least we presume he's a worker because uh, when he's beaten to death uh, in the park, uh, a welding mask pops out of his suitcase, and the punks like put it on his face, uh, and we get a nice like you know medium close up of him looking uh dead with a welding mask on. <laughs> he looks like an astronaut, yeah. you know, just yeah. this very surreal kind of touch uh, at the beginning of the. Movie. Movie, but, you know, he has no one, literally no one, you know, he, he can't go into the past because he doesn't have access to it in any any way, shape or form. Uh, and as the movie develops, you, you do start thinking like, well, right, if if this man had a family, if this man, you know, you start thinking like what's actually what's actually going on here why yeah. can't he figure out you know who he is whereas amuda you know she's got a lot of people to lean on especially the naughty grandpa who is uh one of my favorites you know cuz he's a, he he first of all didn't think it was a good idea to tell her and then he's the one who's like yeah I'll tell you who your mom is what's up you know like love that guy
0: <laughs> you know what In that regard, I guess it is, it is, there is a a big sort of spiritual connection between the two films, which is, you know, they both ask the question of like, of that, this thing that you're sort of bringing up, like, what is the difference between the past and the present in, in terms of like, our, Identity and and who we are. Are we defined by what we were or who we are in this particular moment? You know, do we choose to define ourselves by by that that previous era that we do or do not have access to? Yeah. Uh, Or should we simply focus on what's right in front of us at this particular moment and what's ahead of us you know i think that that's part of the struggle in the the i call it a peck on the cheek in in the indian in the indian film because there is this sort of like do we tell her do we not tell her and they agreed to, that they would do that they would tell her on her ninth birthday i thought it was a sort of very interesting choice in terms of like the age where they were like, all right, at nine, they, they were like, yeah. we agreed at nine. Yeah. They didn't say how they arrived at that number. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it just, you know, and I was wondering again, is there something in Indian culture that I don't know? You know, that like nine is a sacred number of like being like, well, that's when you become the preteen or something. But, but it just sort of seemed like, you know, whatever, we just said we'd tell her when she was nine. I kind of thought,
1: why not a nice even number, ten? Yeah, you know, yeah but, at but least a little bit older. It also, you'd think then with like that predetermined like we're gonna tell her at nine that they would have maybe thought about it a little bit more how they were gonna do it i mean i don't want to judge because yeah like, they would have
0: had a plan yeah
1: like in terms of you know who knows if the subtitles were act i mean they, they were good subtitles but who knows if they were capturing the subtleties of the way he was telling his daughter but i gotta say it was it was not super tactful she's like it's her birthday and she's yeah. having this like lovely day by the water and he just bluntly says you are not my daughter <laughs> and she's like, What are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> He's like, yeah. You are not my daughter. It's as simple as that. And she's like, What the that's fuck? That's because she
2: wouldn't stop running around in goddamn
1: circles. Yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, gotta get her attention
0: somehow. I'm
1: not a person. I'm not a person. I'm not a person. I'm not a
2: person. I'm
0: not a person. I'm not a person. I'm not
2: a person. I'm not a person.
0: I'm not a person. I'm I'm not a person. I'm As we learned in the song, she is the uh, the 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 pretty little brat with the with the pigtails, right? Yeah. Uh, she's a very rambunctious child. She is she is uh, what did what did they say? She's a a villain at school, but a heroine in the classroom. You know, she yeah. is a walking contradiction, uh, as we will discover throughout the film. But yeah, you know, like. That's the whole thing there. It's sort of like, do we tell her, should we tell her? And then and then when they do, of course, that's when the drama really kicks into high gear. Because now she is sort of like, okay, if that's the case, then you people mean nothing to me. And I have to go on this like singular journey to find my real mother, my real father. And it leads to a lot of tension there. But you know what's interesting in Man Without a Past is in a very different way it's like because of this because of this moment where he is is brutally beaten and i got to say again you know maybe a another thing to link both of these films i was sort of shocked by the the like outbursts of suddenly very graphic violence that both of these films like had uh cuz they really come out of left field in in both films for very different reasons but like the beating that he gets in man without a past is It's like something out of like an Abel Farrar movie. It's gross. It's not nice. I mean, it is. he gets whacked and kicked and and hit again. They smash his head. I mean, he is beaten brutally by these deadpan punks, uh, these street thugs um, (laughs) um, in Helsinki. But but after this beating, you know, and he sort of resurrects himself because, should be pointed out, I mean, he does flatline. I mean, he is dead. He's He's 100% dead. That when he suddenly uh, uh, resurrects and fixes his horribly crooked, broken nose, again, very gross and very cool.
2: I love when he's just, like, staring into the camera with his bandages after he springs up.
0: Yeah, and his nose is, like, at, like, a 45-degree angle in, like, the wrong direction. And he just, like, fixes it back in place and then goes. From that point on, I mean, he struggles. But, like, this guy is living his best life life you know it's like starting from scratch for him it it leads to so many wonderful things you know that that i think as the film goes on you start to go like well who cares about who you were because you got new friends you got a gal you got the cool the cool shipping container that you've decorated so well i mean like this guy really starts to become a person he probably wouldn't have been if he hadn't gone through this i mean obviously yeah, yeah. you know he wouldn't have gone through this so it's interesting right because on on the one hand it's sort of like man without a past is making the case that it's like you know this is kind of a, a blessing in disguise if you think about it whereas in peck on the cheek it just leads to um some some increasingly increasingly like uh, dangerous and and very like disastrous situations for for everybody involved
1: yeah i think those sudden outbursts of violence in a peck on the cheek in the in like the latter half of the film is something that i've always really appreciated about mani ratnam's filmmaking in general because every like anything could be possible in any of his movies And it is very shocking. And he does something that I think I've heard like prescribed for a lot of Indian cinema that sometimes when I watch Bollywood films, I like, I understand it theoretically, but still struggle to connect a little bit. This idea of, you know, like the perfect Bollywood masala film that has all of these like key emotions that are supposed to be expressed at like various points uh, throughout the film. And it's like a successful film is measured by like how well it reaches those peaks of all those different emotions. And, Mani Ratnam's films, like I think of his film Bombay, which the first half of that movie, and I'm talking like the first, you know, 70 minutes of of that movie, are basically a romantic comedy. You know, the comedy isn't like super prevalent, but it's there and it's incredibly romantic. It's very pleasant. And then the back half of the film is like a brutalizing experience about those two lovers trying to raise a family in the midst of the hindu muslim riots in bombay and the violence against the whole family against children is just unbelievable and the fact that he can like shift between those registers in a single film constantly has always really impressed me and and startled me and this film is like no exception because yeah it's got like sort of a, th- a love interest beginning with a little bit of a thriller. Then we enter into full on colorful musical and the song we've talked about that yeah, describes family like, melodrama, man.
0: It's 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 I mean, and that's the thing it's it, this movie is just a uh, 90 degree turns, like every like 20 minutes yeah. uh, in terms of your expectations, where you think it's going, how you, how you believe the film to be assembled. I mean, I should even you know get a little bit more specific about that that first huge shift because yes we do start with this very almost like sumptuous uh romantic drama and we see the 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 lovers the now you know married couple uh you know at this this river and they're flirting and mm-hmm. they're 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 falling in love because it is an arranged marriage we discover at at the beginning so there isn't this initial like you know, uh, open affection between the two. We we get some time where we see it start to to kind of build and then we see soldiers suddenly like invade the forest and that's very cool it was like there's something out of like the thin red line how they they kind of just appeared from the vegetation in their like camouflage and and with like leaves tied to their helmets and stuff which was very cool and and the man is is immediate like this is bad i have to handle this and it becomes then it's just like this This historical epic for a moment where we see the crisis unfolding and then we get the credits and we shift into this girl, you know, Amuda, introducing herself to in direct address to the camera, which has not been established in the previous sequence. I mean, she's literally looking directly into the camera and being like, let me tell you about my life. And yeah. we get this big musical number and and she is just like having soliloquies. She's talking to the camera. It's very playful. It is, it is goofy shit. It's like a Disney movie it suddenly. Is. It's like high school musical. I mean, it's crazy, this whole sequence number. And I, I'm not unfamiliar with like, A good song and dance suddenly in like a Bollywood, you know, war film. I've seen plenty of those, but this is a, this is a, a sharp 90 degree turn. And then after that sequence, that shit's dropped altogether. Like there's no more direct address of the camera. She's no longer, (laughs) you know, talking to us. As the audience, you know, and and we then get into more of the dramatic territory with her family, the the sort of like domestic drama that starts to unfold. I mean, it is it is wild how how this movie shifts. And on the flip side, Aki Karizmaki carries uh, one tone only. She goes. I mean, I mean, yeah, that's that's why these movies were such a a a like man, a a uh, a very like. A, a, an almost like a, a, abusive pairing to me because of like how much emoting is going on in a peck in the cheek i mean and and not just like characters crying and laughing and 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 pouring their fucking hearts out on on the screen but the music that'll like swell behind these dramatic moments and these very long, drawn-out, like, close-ups of just someone's face as their, you know, their, their heart is being broken, their soul is being crushed, you know? And, and it's almost like action movie music will just, like, add to the emotional stakes of of the moment. And then, yeah, you're in Karismaki land, and it's just like, do these people have a pulse? What's going on here, you know? I mean, this is heavy stuff. And everyone is just... It's like they just rolled out of bed. And I love Karsmaki. I love Karsmaki for that, you know? But it is like... putting these two movies next to each other it is like it is a it is an
1: upper and a downer yeah like at the exact same time it it makes you think about how big the world is (laughs) you know like these Mm -hmm. movies show like what could be possible with cinema to such radically different extremes we've got finland up in the north that's really cold we've got southern india it's like very warm very colorful just visually sonically everything about both of these movies are just like so radically different but they're so far apart globally and it's just thinking about like this world is so big it's just fucking crazy
2: (laughs) yeah one thing that really struck me in uh, a peck in the cheek was like in that first section at the house and with the family Uh, how every door and window was like open, you know? And like we're spending so much time with like her brothers and like her, everyone, you know, her aunt and all these people are popping in and out and the cameras just like flowing through the house and they can like fucking see the ocean from their porch. Like it really is this like crazy, idyllic, beautiful kind of thing. And then I was just, yeah, thinking like of the shipping container, you know, like, (laughs) uh, and and not that, you know, those characters also don't have open door policies, you know. I mean, I think community and family, of course, are like central uh, to these films because they're about identity. Yeah.
0: But you're right, though. I mean, because like Karsmaki for me has always struck me as like, you know, um, these very like flat images, like yeah. very flattened out. Like mm-hmm. everything seems to be in each scene on the same, on like one plane. There's yeah. one plane that the action is taking part in. Characters are just smooshed together. uh Very, very like compressed. And yeah, there is so much depth to a lot of the images in A Peck on the Cheek. That's another like very, like kind of like unsettling experience to go from this to that. And, and not just the depth of the image but but as you've already described like the at times dizzying camera moves in a peck on the cheek i mean of course maki's camera that shit is locked down for the most part you know oh, oh yeah. yeah frontal locked down just yeah.
2: barely cutting yeah uh, and yeah like i just wrote at a certain point like the the axis tilts alone, you know, or like uh, what you know, like yeah. completely sideways, you know, mm-hmm. like something of course that yeah, Kurosaki would never do. No, oh yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was the, the 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 crazy, like the craziest fucking shot for me early on. uh Again, like it it gets introduced and it will be repeated at a, at a few points, but like. Uh, there's this big kind of like swing inside the house that people sit on or can lay on. And he uh, attaches the camera to the swing and we'll have characters sometimes having a conversation on it. And while they're not moving for us, the whole like background is just tilting back and forth. It's very like, it's very... Uh, yeah, it's very it's very dizzying, uh, and it, it reminded me a lot of Carl uh, uh, Freund, the German cinematographer, the whole unchained camera thing. Mm. Like this dude has unchained his camera uh, fully, fully. <laughs> I mean, totally. th- This thing is going wherever the fuck it wants to. There's some like gnarly helicopter shots too. I mean, I'm 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 just remembering some of them. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I the mean, images
1: are just like flooding back. I mean, the thing yeah. with him is it's like. Every sequence of the film is so intensely present tense because his camera is modifying itself to fit the scenes, even if they feel like radical juxtapositions from things that immediately preceded or follow it. Because like you mentioned, I think that's like the perfect descriptor for the musical number of her at school, that it feels like a Disney Channel movie formally the film is extremely different during that scene than it is throughout the rest of the movie but like what is that sequence about it's about introducing a child into this movie and all of a sudden the film feels like a children's film that is when there's the most like axis shifting camera work the cutting is so fast I actually like got a little nervous because I was thinking like okay this is not like his other movies I've seen if it's gonna be cut in this fast I'm gonna I am gonna get dizzy uh and it doesn't The film like really <laughs> Down, but it does feel like every sequence his visual approach shifts to see like how can i unlock something that's happening in this scene visually he's like constantly thinking about dynamic visuals to just heighten the emotions to make it more melodramatic to make it more extreme yeah in in that regard i wonder if he's a hype williams fan
0: because i'm starting to suddenly (laughs) be like wow this is basically just like you know Uh, a Tamil belly or something. (laughs) It's like each sequence is its own kind of thing where you can kind of be like, all right, they went in and, and this is what they were vibing on. Now I think there might be something a little bit more conceptual going on than him just being like, yeah, wouldn't this be fucking cool? But it it is interesting now that you're saying this and providing me with a little bit more context. um, Now I'm seeing how a lot of these sequences, you know, the, I, I can see how the radical formal differences are almost about changes in perspective and changes in character perspectives, because there is a certain dominant figure in various scenes and sequences and points. Mm -hmm. And as that shifts, so does how he is, uh, capturing the, the mood, capturing the tone, capturing, the the drama or the the experiences you know because like in like you said in this in this high school musical thing right it's like it's from her perspective she's talking to the camera she's in control of how the images are being uh arranged and displayed and all that stuff so it is like a, as if a, a, a child directed the sequence almost mm mm-hmm. But when we have some other musical numbers, notably you know we have a, a musical number much later in the film where where her adopted father is is singing about his love for her and and particularly following this revelation and rebirth and and the drama that's associated with it like is she going to to basically like disown all of them to to just flee to this to her 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 birth mother uh, it's like a, a series of shots in like a desolate kind of like ocean and, and mm. on like a mountaintop and it's very dreamy. It's very misty. melodramatic. Yeah, misty. And it's it's just all these shots of like the father trying to to hold on to his daughter trying to 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 chase her up and down these mountains to to still maintain a grip over this relationship you know and it's 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 totally totally different yeah that's Uh, interesting because
1: i think about like sequences that are primarily the mother is when the camera is like most frequently in close-up and it's very gentle and shots linger and then I think about some of the scenes where the father feels like the central figure Within the larger scene, and I think about some of those sequence shots inside their beautiful apartment as the camera is like dollying around and moving between rooms. And it almost feels like he has more long form camera, se- ca- just like sequence shots when the father is of like the primary focus in a sequence versus the very tight, you know, close up, nice photography when it's dealing with the mother and her relationship with her daughter. And then, of course, yeah, the, the chaos. When Amudha is the focus of the scene, when she flees from home, the camera goes nuts. Yeah, because even like genre
2: wise, I wrote down that it went from being, yeah, this sort of like family melodrama to being a, an investigation and a mystery to then being a road trip movie and then being a war movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and like, he, yeah, he, he is shifting style accordingly, right? And I do think it is, yes, tied to which characters are, are particularly dominant. Although now I'm thinking about the flashback scenes. You know what I really loved? The uh the two shot like tracking shots of them like in their courtship. Uh when they're riding, he has the moped and she has the bicycle, and they have uh, two different scenes where that's just like a key element of it.
3: <laughs> I'm
1: going
2: to go
0: to
2: the past, just like watching this romantic comedy now, you know? am going to go to the house. I'm going to go to the house. I'm going to the house. Yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. (laughs) Well, I want to. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was gonna say, uh, you know, Andy did. Andy did say that, you know, and he's right in saying that, like this guy getting his brains beaten out and man without a past is is kind of a good thing because he is living his best life, uh, in a sense. But make no mistake, he there is quite a bit of struggle uh, and suffering. This is not quite the uh, the level of MVP two uh, of glorifying homelessness, (laughs) you know. (laughs) um and you know of course like he does take steps to uh get a job you know apply for unemployment like do do these sort of formal things uh and and he runs into like mandabi territory where it's like well you can't you can't do anything cause you don't have a name, I mean, you know, he's like going around to a series of offices and everyone's just sort of like berating him because he's like, yeah, I don't have a name. They're like, that's bullshit. You know, like no one wants to entertain, that. And they just like kick him out. Right. Um, and, and we get that sort of, yeah, sense of like the state, you know, just being totally
0: unhelpful. Um, you know what I was going to say too is, uh, now that i'm like reflecting and thinking a little bit more on on how we've been describing a peck on the cheek compared to man without a past it strikes me now that that i i think karismaki is also shifting genre quite a bit throughout his film i mean when you really take a step back and think about it like Uh, You know, this movie has very comedic moments. It has very dramatic moments. It has romantic comedy. It's suddenly a bank robbery movie. It's suddenly a
1: horror film. It's It's suddenly a musical a musical, absolutely. Oh, There's... it's
2: an outright musical. If not, I was going to say it's a secret musical, but it is like, it's an outright musical. And I don't think it's a stretch to say, like, he structures most of his movies around, like, which of his LPs he wants to put in the movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, dude, I read an interview with him from, like, 2006. And he was basically like, my favorite part of making movies is mixing. Like, who says that? You know, like, no great director says that. He does, though, because for him, he locks himself in his room. He edits on a Steenbeck... You know, with film, uh, at least up—I don't know if what if he's still doing that—but well into the 2000s, he cut by hand, and then just had his record player, and then would be like, "This will go good," you know, and just <laughs> and just play with the music and like use the music as uh, a sort of primary element
0: of well, the movie. And that makes sense for a guy who clearly is a pal of Jim Jarmusch's, because like Jarmusch has said, for him, of all the arts. He sees cinema most related to music, like Jarmusch has always said. He thinks in very similar ways of of like, hey, when you listen to music, it's about the the experience of a set passage of time and rhythm and tempo and tone via musical notes, right? So, makes a whole lot of sense that in this and other Chorus Maki films, you know, music is this sort of punctuation mark for so much of what we're seeing or like just sheer counterpoint that adds to the just kind of like bizarro world that he creates of, you know, of, of sometimes like underlining what's happening and sometimes, uh, really kind of like alienating us from, from the action itself. Like I was thinking of, um, you know, when he, first sort of meets this other guy this other like yeah neiman in the shipping (laughs) container guy and and this guy immediately is sort of like all right you're my new best you know my new best pal like this is going to be great i got a buddy now and and i'm i can build my buddy the way i want to uh there's a there's a song that plays underneath it that in the translation was i've got a new friend you know, and it's like that's what I was thinking. I was like, yeah, they got—he's got a new friend now. You know, he got the shit kicked out of him. He got literally like just thrown into the world. He—he he passed out on a on a river bank. Some guy stole his boots. Some kids were were basically like, ah, oh, this guy's fucking dead. And then after all this, he now has this this guide, this guy that's gonna help him get back onto his feet, and that's the music
2: as neimanin says in their their first bar encounter uh
1: life goes on not backwards ah ah. man yeah well because i was thinking so much about the man's journey and his quest and things he accepts and things he still tries to change i was trying to like wrap my head around his rebirth And how he even felt about it, because it's very ambiguous. You have no access to his
2: inner life.
1: (laughs) Right, it's not ambiguous in a peck on the cheek. She learns that she might not be who she thought she was. She's adopted. She wants to like go after her roots. She learns she's you know her mother's from a different country. So she there's like this journey of this past. Exactly, we saw it all go down. Yeah, and then in Man Without a Past, his past is gone he doesn't seem exceptionally concerned that he doesn't know who he is. It's certainly something he's thinking about, presumably. But he does, instead of like going out and about and trying to track down someone that might recognize him, instead, he does kind of shack up with his new community. He does get the shipping container as a new home. He makes it very comfortable. He puts a lot of effort into that to, like, treat this rebirth as like, this is a new path for me. I've got this home. The potatoes are a metaphor. Exactly. He plants potatoes. He's expecting to be here for a while. He wants to cultivate. He wants to grow. This is a new life. But then at the same time, I kept thinking about how, okay, he doesn't have a name. And, you know, he's curious what his name was, but instead of like fully committing to this rebirth. He never just decides on what his new name could be. I thought it was interesting that in all these situations where he's he's trying to get a job or he's trying to be set up for social services or something, trying to set up a bank account, you know, he's, he always needs a name. And he's like, I, I don't have one. And, you know, obviously it's complicated to invent a new identity, uh, especially if it's not like totally legally sound but it is something that people do and i just thought it was interesting that that's never an avenue he explores there's this contentment with his rebirth and his new life and his new shipping container but there's also like part of him that's like got one foot out the door you know he's never gonna just call himself something new he's still curious as to who he really is I think well. Maybe. Plus, he's got rent to pay to
2: Antilla. You know yeah. the, uh, the the rent whip of God. Yeah. But
1: that's what. But that's what I mean. If he had just come up with a new name and decided this is my new identity, it'd be much easier for him to get a job, and to pay the rent. Well, you got to get forged papers. How's he gonna do that? Well, I figured some of those guys gotta know that community. <laughs> the people live in hand to mouth, and the shipping containers well, no, like, they like they a can specific. I guess more like <laughs> the guy documents. That- <laughs> No, it's true. It's true. I think, you know, the guy who rents him the shipping container, I bet he has connections into getting a new name, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that would have been the avenue.
2: And instead, the movie's villain sort of like becomes his friend. (laughs) yeah it's a weird thing it's very charismatic it is
1: the movie's so funny i i the the beginning when he has this new friend and he's like you know what like it's payday i'm gonna take you out to dinner and they Mm -hmm. enter into the like soup line you know that's just yeah the whole whole movie is full of stuff like that that movie it was i I haven't seen very many charismatic movies i've liked everything i've seen and it's been a while but yeah this reminded me i'm like oh yeah this guy you know This guy's my speed. I need to spend more time with him. It's, he's
0: so fucking funny. And I mean, I think it's like, it's, it's, it's the deadpan thing where it's like some of the funniest things that, that'll happen or that are said, like five minutes later, you'll reflect back on it and be like, oh my God, that was so goddamn hilarious. But you don't like necessarily like laugh out loud in the moment, at least not me, you know? Like sometimes I have to like think about it because of the way everything is delivered and be like, God damn, dude, that was a punchline, even though it wasn't delivered as a punchline. Like, you know, when he's sitting there with this guy with Neiman and and they're having their beers on their big Friday night out to the to the soup kitchen. Um, <laughs> they're kind of just like going over, you know, like uh Neiman and trying to like prompt him to be like, Well, you gotta remember something, right? Do you remember anything? And he's sort of quizzing him on like simple facts like, you know, what what month is it? What year is it? Or some shit like that. And then he throws some, some mathematics at him. And he's like, he's like, all right, what's eight by what, what's eight times eight. And, uh, and our dude replies 61 uh, and Neiman very sure of himself. is like, no 72. Come on. You know? And I was just kind of like, all right. And I was like, it's like eight and I was like, Wait, it's not, that's, it's 64. And I was like, like, (laughs) like, like two minutes later I did the math and I was like, holy shit, that's so goddamn funny. You know, this is your guide. The guy that, that also doesn't know what eight times eight is, you know? Right. But also like, I think the very next scene, then they're just kind of like, they're like walking back to like the shipping containers and Niemann like behind him. And then he just like tries to hit him with a huge piece of wood. <laughs> yeah, he picks up a two by four, <laughs> takes a swing at the back of his head. And our dude's like, Whoa, Whoa, what the fuck, man? He's like, ah, I saw it in a movie, you know, when I was a, a kid or something, you know, that's how they got the guy's memory back. They hit him again. And I'm thinking like
1: a cartoon, you dipshit. That's what he's talking about. You know? Well, it's funny. Cause isn't this type of amnesia, like truly like just a cinematic I'm sure in terms of it's like very extremely uncommon for retrograde amnesia to involve like I don't know who I am, right? Yeah. Like, he knows yeah. like
2: every, well and and he even has like certain elements of his life that that do that we learn did carry over, right? Uh he likes rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Uh but he doesn't he doesn't know why or anything. But yeah, you're right, Ryan, and like it makes no sense at all. Like he knows everything about the world except who he is. Right. It's like <laughs>
1: you know <laughs>
2: yeah it's totally a cinematic construction but i mean i think that's you know that's karismaki land it appears to be this sort of realistic thing but he's actually uh, telling you a fairy tale or some or using surrealism like i mean he's just such a he's very deceptive i guess um
0: in that sense you know and i'm just talking out of my i'm just talking yeah, out of my ass please. here right in that sense You know, I wonder if you could almost read it as he's lying about not knowing who he is. (laughs) You know what I mean? But that he, it's like when he comes out of the hospital bed, he's suddenly like, perfect, I got it. You know, I got it. My chance to start over, to to just throw out my past life. Which again, as we move forward, and he does eventually like get to kind of like he's he's basically forced back there yes. too you know that again like you said it isn't this whole like
2: who am I he's
0: not desperate to find out who he is he's not like living in the shipping container and being like look I had to have a fucking house right I had to have a, like an apartment right like I had to have something better than this. I had to have something better than absolutely having nothing. I should go find that, right? Clearly, I'm a 50-year-old man, or however the the hell old he is. He's not in any rush to go back there. And then when it is, like, sort of revealed, like, we've got your name, it's like the cops basically, like, force him to go back and confront his wife, and he doesn't give a shit. And he just basically is like, all right, well, I did it. I met you. I talked. I'm out of here. I'm leaving. Because I go back to the beginning. And like you said, in peck without a cheek, we without get a cheek, peck without a cheek, <laughs> peck without a cheek. Yeah, dude. Jesus Christ. Yeah, they're 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 blurring together the more I think about it. Um, in in peck on the cheek, um, man without a peck, you know? <laughs> man without a peck, man without a cheek. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, if you go, you know, in, in Peck on the Cheek, we we get like the backstory. We know that there's something there and we we can, we are sitting there being like, I hope you eventually get to to see this woman that we know exists. But if you go to the very beginning of Man Without a Past, what do we know about this guy? What do we find out? He's just on a train and the way it's filmed, the way it's lit, there's something very almost noir about it, isn't there? He almost looks like he's sneaking onto this train. You know, well, I
2: mean, he, he is, Lee, you know, right? It's revealed, you know, spoilers. Uh, when he meets his ex wife, he learns that they had divorced and he was, quote, heading south for a job that's what she says so i think there's room andy uh, to interpret uh, i don't i don't necessarily think he's lying but i do think <laughs> that in this strange conception of amnesia that yeah maybe if he doesn't know he knows you know right like deep down
0: yeah mm. like he's
2: not looking because like he he's not compelled to, you know, because... Yeah, because there's the
1: truth there. Okay, I'll meet you in the middle, and I'll buy that one, that <laughs> yeah, that read. Yeah. That, that There's, like, something in his core that is, that is like, I I do reject my original life, and I accept my rebirth. Yeah, because I think that's part of it for me, you know,
0: is I think as I watched this movie, I just kept reflecting on this idea of, you know, how liberating it must be to suddenly wipe the slate clean. You know what I mean? Like all your past holdups, your traumas, your insecurities, the things that, that make you compromise. If suddenly you took all of that stuff away, like what decisions would you make tomorrow about how to spend your day, where to go, who to talk to, who to ask out on a date, you know, what to pursue. You know, it's like suddenly he's just like, I'm gonna become a rock and roll manager, you know, like, and and it's like his his journey to suddenly just do this thing that again, prior to that fucking bash on the skull, he probably would have been like, nah, it's ridiculous. I'm not gonna be a goddamn rock and roll manager. What, some Salvation Army band? I'm gonna turn him into the next big rock thing? Like, that's that's idiotic. Why would I do that? But now, he has nothing, nothing in there to 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 lead him astray from this 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 present desire to just pursue a thing that in his core he does truly love and enjoy Yeah, the Salvation
2: Army Band and its workers, you know, as he uh, gets very involved. I love the transformation of the Salvation Army Band into uh, these rock and roll guys, especially, too. There's there's like a sly uh, edit gag where, you know, it's like, oh, but... You know, we only play traditional music here at the Salvation Army and it's like well let's maybe run it upstairs and, and like their <laughs> boss is this older woman with a very cinematically craggly face and she's like uh you know i used to sing a little bit and then it's like cut to the salvation army band is like modernized and playing rock and she's like pruning uh it's incredible and she delivers like two full musical numbers with the the salvation army band and just like uh a, a peck on the cheek uh it's commenting on the action
1: it's reflecting on the action right like directly um yeah, yeah. It's fu- it's funny. I was thinking, you know, when we were g- our conspiracy theory about the man without a past and in his true motivations and what he knows, like deep down in his core. One of the questions I was like jokingly going to ask was, you know, in in Pe- 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 peck without a cheek, in peck on the cheek, she does prepare a list of questions for her mother. She's got like twenty questions that she's going to ask her, and I was thinking about. What would be the questions that the man without a past would have asked his former self after having been like rebirthed if he could get those answers? But now I'm thinking he wouldn't have even wanted to know. I don't think he's
2: interested at all.
1: Yeah, he just had like a cursory interest, if that. He was fully committed to this new life as a rock and roll manager living in a shipping container. He's got a band and he's got a girl, you know, and like and a nice
2: jukebox and a great jukebox. You guys know I love that shit. Yeah, I mean it's funny too. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of Christian uh, references and iconography throughout "Man Without a Past" as well. Did you guys notice? when he goes into the Salvation Army uh, dressing or, like, fitting, uh, you know, room, there's, like, a Christ on the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even earlier, Antilla says to him that if he if he snitches about the shipping containers, he'll deny him like Peter, mm-hmm. you know, and <laughs> shit uh, like that. Yeah. So, like, I think Karasmaki is, you know, uh, riffing on some sort of like biblical stuff here too or at least just making jokes about it in a droll way yeah. because it's it's his resurrection
0: movie yeah know. he's a Finnish Lazarus <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah but what is the it's the the Salvation Army also though is a part of like yeah the universal yeah. church the universal Christian church something like that yeah, and in
2: Karismaki's vision, they're an, I- they're an ideal, not what they're actually like. Right. In, uh, in, re- in real <laughs> <Yeah>. life, right?
1: <laughs> I love when his shipping container is hooked up to the electricity Dude, network. You know? Best guy ever. Oh, that guy is so great. You know, he comes in, he's, he's got his like weird way of wiring up a shipping container to be powered. And when the man asks him, like, oh, what do I owe you? What does he say? He says something like, Mitala <laughs> Well, if you ever see me face down in a gutter, you know, lift me up, flip me over. Turn me on my back. Turn me on my back, yeah. Very beautiful. Really like that a lot. And they just have
2: dinner for three, you know, a little slop sitting around the refrigerator while the, the newly fixed jukebox plays. I mean yeah terrific moments of of camaraderie
0: yeah and i love then that when his like landlord right when he comes back and sees he's just like man you really gussied up this place i think i gotta raise your rent you know like this is looking this is looking too cozy right now yeah this
2: is actually the state protects something. business
0: yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean oh yeah we could go we could go on um I do want to talk about, you know, since we sort of got ahead of ourselves there uh, with the man without a past, uh, we should talk about what happens, of course, when Amuda and her parents uh, decide to make the trek to sri lanka i mean first she just sort of like runs runs away twice in the in the movie one a false runaway uh the other full runaway yeah like with
1: a buddy who doesn't even know where he's going he's like on the bus with her and it's like the middle of the night and he's like you think they're gonna like come after us you think the cops are gonna get us and she's like nah they keep going and he's just like by the way where are we going I'm like, dude, yeah. a true friend. <laughs> yeah, you know? truly. I mean, he yeah. just
2: vanishes from the movie, um, but they <laughs> go to the they go to like you know the town where the refugee camp was, where she was born, um, to inquire, you know, and get some more information. Uh, and there's. Really stunning uh, moment when the parents, you know, finally catch up with her and they see her through the slits of the window in the hospital and she's just out to sea, you know, standing out in the water. Wow. I mean, yeah, so many visually striking uh, compositions here.
0: I got to say, though, there's this moment where... You know, her adopted mother then is is like really upset about all this, about the way she's been behaving. And even the dad, you know, he's yeah. a little ex- I mean, that's the main family tension. Yeah. Know. And she, she asks at a certain point, like, what the hell's going on? Why is she so selfish? Like, why is Amuda so selfish? And I was just thinking, like, well, you probably shouldn't have puffed her up by making her think she was the goddamn main character and giving her this musical number <laughs> and 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 having everybody <laughs> sing songs about how amazing she is and how fucking cool and awesome she is how she's a good guy and a bad guy like you created this monster 100% i blame you and your shitty parenting on turning this child oh, into no. this this reckless reckless like you know brat who's who's potentially going to get you all killed over this shit,
1: you know? Well, it is funny. Yeah. I like, I had a lot of patience for, for her, uh, and some of the decisions she made and the, you know, the storm of emotion she was going through. But I, there was like that moment late in the film where I got like mad when they were waiting for her real mother to arrive, like, in the center of this town, and she throws a temper tantrum when the army arrives. Like, I'm not gonna go. And it's like, oh, my fucking God. Like, get out of there, you know?
2: That's what I, like, earlier, (laughs) There, yeah, there's these, like, bungling bourgeoisie moments. But I think it just makes it better, you know? Oh, I think so, too, yeah. Because to me, it's like, of course, they're like, ah, whatever whatever princess wants, you know? Like, they're gonna go all the way to war-torn Sri Lanka. And look, it's obviously an important thing, but, like... Don't do that. Yeah. You know, you're wandering into to Wang Bing's Tang. Yeah. You know, like... Yeah. We'll, t- we'll talk about that sequence, you know, whatever, but...
0: <laughs> well, because I, I was sitting there, though, and going, like, what about the, the real sons? What about the, the, the two boys, you know? Like, they're not getting doted on this much, you know? And I had that thought, where I was just like, all this over her? What about your real children, who clearly also need you? I mean, this girl... She she bullies the shit out of those two poor kids, right? I mean, early on, she like fucking breaks one of their noses, and and when the when the one son's like, dude, she just like busted his nose, he's bleeding everywhere. The dad like smirks and he's like, well, that's our mood, you know. I'm like, <laughs> again, like you created this 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 person who thinks they have no consequences for their actions, and I was feeling so bad for those two sons who've now been abandoned by, by the actual birth (laughs) parents. But then there is a moment where suddenly they're like in the car on their way to like, you know, the fucking war zone. And the mom is like, you know, I'm thinking about our two sons, you know, we're really kind of focusing on her and, uh, you know, we got two back there. Uh, Are we, are we, are we picking a favorite here? You know, is this kind of a bad thing we're doing? She does finally, have that moment of, of parental reflection that I was,
1: like, just waiting for. <laughs> well, so she I, probably thought, oh, it would be a nice time for the boys to, like, hang out with Grandpa. You know, it's a multi-generational household. I feel like yeah. the nice, you know, bonding time. I will say, though, those boys... They did, you know, they defended themselves and they had a fucking really sick burn uh, oh, on a mood dude, Abunha. when he says
2: they're... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when
1: she, oh, yeah, when
2: they're,
1: they're like just f- fighting like siblings would and, you know, she's like, oh, why did my mom leave me? And they're like, oh, well, you want to know why your mom left you? Like, because she had to pee. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just like sick so dismissive. Burn. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, you know, the boy thing
2: that was my favorite part, Ryan. I, I underlined that. Yeah. Your mom abandoned you because <laughs> she had to pee. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> I mean, you know, but again, I think like, yeah, I'm glad they do bring it up, Andy, because they clearly are favoring her because as the film's flashback details, she's the sole reason these two people got together anyway and have a family like the refugee child brought them together. And I also love that the film brings up the fact that like maybe what, uh, Thiru did it was like exploit- <laughs> exploitation, you know. Because in the flashback, he's this like budding journalist, and his first published story is about this refugee child who they later name Amuda and adopt, you know. Uh, and then he becomes a celebrated, like famous writer, well, uh, because I, of
0: that. And I'm glad you brought that up too, because there's another element there about him that that uh, that unsettled me in terms of you know his his prestige. He also writes under a pen name which is his wife's name right so he's like also like almost like posing as like a woman writer (laughs) am i not
1: did i read that wrong or something it it is yeah it's it's a little perplexing i did read that (laughs) the screenwriter of this film also writes under the pen name of a woman and i don't know if that was something that translated into a weird joke in the script because it is strange because it's a huge part of it um or if it was just being self-conscious of that because I think the film does have like a lot of room for you to think about this family as being very bourgeois and bumbling and making a lot of insane decisions because I was sitting there thinking like wow this is like really the heightened reality talk about you know just like stretching the plausibility of all of this by sending this family into a war zone that they would make a decision like this but at the same time I think that the film provides enough evidence that suggests the father who thinks of himself as this great writer and having all this clout, especially with the way he just like treats people on the street that he probably thinks he's untouchable that he's like, well, I'm too big to be killed in a crisis in this other country. That does prove to be true as well. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause also like, you know, he went, when they go, when they finally like go back to, to her home country, he's also like giving a lecture there about writing. Mm -hmm. And that was like, that was like an insane like lecture he was giving. (laughs) I mean, like he's just like sort of like just kind of like screaming at everybody in, (laughs) in the audience and like dressing them down and, and saying like something along the lines of like, if you don't have authenticity in your life, you're nothing, you'll have nothing to write about. And I was thinking like, this is coming from a guy who writes under a, a woman's name, right, and and who potentially, like, adopted a child so he could have his breakout, you know, short story or whatever, and, <laughs> right. and seems to just sort of make up shit and, and li- has lived nine years of a lie with his daughter, you know? I mean, he didn't tell her the moment she could figure things out. He kept that a secret for a very long time. So authenticity, pal. Who who you crapping, right, Marsh? Well, you're, you're the same guy that wrote about me when I did have the fire, that that was mm-hmm. the wrong thing to do. So who are you crapping? Yeah,
2: and I think that's why Manny Ratnam's cross-cutting between his speech and Amuda meeting a nice man in the park. Ryan, why don't you tell us about that Well, that's that what I was going to say, talking about, you know,
1: <laughs> speaking about authenticity and, you know, really giving yourself into what you actually believe in and being fully honest. He's giving that speech when it's cross-cutting with a man who ends up suicide bombing into a military convoy that's, like, on the road right outside of that conference hall. Yeah. You know, talk about being committed to your own values. (laughs) Correct me if I'm wrong here, but wasn't that her birth father? It
0: looks so much like him. And there was, like, a weird connection that they had, you know?
2: Yeah, it's a different actor. I looked it up. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah.
0: But I think then probably a conscious choice though. It's like a surrogate father
2: because we don't actually learn what became of her father, but we do learn in that opening that he was a rebel fighter, right? So whether he died in the initial fray or in nine years of action, uh, the question is broached and not answered at the end of the film. Like, where's my father? No answer, right? Um, So I think it is like, yeah, consciously being like, it's not her dad, but. It's her dad.
0: Yeah, you know, man. Though, if it if it had been, man, this movie to me, that'd be like an extra half star right there. If if you just got that <laughs> like that sicko kind of O. Henry ironic moment there of just being like talking to the daughter that he doesn't know, and then just being
1: like, "Well, see ya." Boom, blowing <laughs> yeah. himself up, dude. You know, <laughs> but that there rocks, is. Dude. I still I still think <laughs> that like that is kind of embedded within it because that to me. Having seen a few of his other films, it does feel like a part of his larger project. He does really center people that are perceived, at least in these very like outwardly political films. He's made so many movies, and not, not all of them are like this. But these ones that are like this, he does very purposefully center people who are perceived as terrorists, as human beings. And characters with motivations and are oftentimes the protagonists of these movies, especially that movie Bombay that I mentioned, where it shifts into the Hindu Muslim riots. But the film does take people, you know, you get to know people, you get to love them, you get to care about them, and then he pits them against each other. And he leaves it, you know, as you as the viewer going, well, how am I supposed to reconcile any of this? Like, look at this violence that I'm seeing on screen. And I was just getting to know these people. And Mm -hmm. to me, I think that scene with the man who does blow himself up is supposed to evoke a certain sense of like, this man does have more in common with her real father than her adopted father does by uh, a significant amount. (laughs) <laughs> well, because, yeah, then later on when they, they ask
0: the, the birth mother, like, well, where's my dad? She doesn't even reply. She just right. starts to cry. So, yeah, whether, whether like that or another way, yeah, he, he sure as shit died in the fighting. Yeah, absolutely. But, man, seeing that wheelchair, like, going to get, both, blown, get the wheelchair that got blown sky high, dude. Yeah. Oh, my God. does <laughs> I mean, these, like, shocking moments. I was like... She's just having a conversation with this guy and then suddenly he's like, Well, gotta go. And then like sprints at a at an army truck and it just fucking
1: goes sky high. Amazing. Yeah. No, he's no he's not afraid of a totally pathological argument when he needs to do it. <laughs> no. And not afraid of uh
2: shooting a a massive uh, great migration under artillery fire (laughs) scene as well, which is another
1: sort of like maximalist high point of the movie, you know? And it's funny, it's like a movie that doesn't necessarily feel like it came out in 2002 like it feels like just because of the film stock and this it i don't know to me it feels like it came out in the 90s and then you get uh, a couple moments of like digital artillery yeah. <laughs> landing Some in the cgi like, explosion this is yeah this is this is 2002 <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but i mean otherwise no the scale of that sequence is unbelievable the amount of extras he had like, good God. You know, and, and again, I guess then another interesting connection
0: I'm drawing between the two films is, you know, the spirit of that moment of her sort of taking the time to just talk to this stranger on the street, you know, and have this kind of like heartfelt connection with uh, with just a totally random person on this planet and then seeing where that winds up and and the, the sort of gray area that you've kind of laid out, Ryan, in terms of like, was well, this a good person or is this a bad person? Well, it's just a person. The world's full of them and they do things and there are, are sometimes like violent consequences for it. It's kind of like the, the moment in the bank in Man Without a Past yeah. where, you know, at a certain point he goes to a bank to try to take some money or establish a bank account or something like that. And he's again, running into the hurdle of Well, you know, at the very least, you need a name for the account, right? And as he's like sort of just talking to this again, like deadpan bank teller, a man suddenly walks up with a double barrel shotgun to hold the place up. But as we discover, he's not just robbing the bank, he's like robbing his business account that's been frozen so that he can pay his employees, mm-hmm. and again, it's like this sort of violent moment, and this guy's at first to us like, oh, a scary criminal. I mean, it's Karsmaky; you're not scared, but you know, it's like, oh, what the hell is going to happen with this guy? And then he he comes back. You know, they have a moment where then they they connect again, and he, of course, gets the context and the backstory for for why the guy held up the bank for a very specific amount of money from a very specific account. And then he's like hired by the bank robber to to pass out this money to the rest of his employees because he pays his debts, as he says. And as he like leaves, you know, and they have this kind of like touching this moment where they they connected and we see the humanity behind his crime, his action. As he leaves, we hear a gunshot implying that the guy then just blew his own fucking brains out after this act. Again, it's like sort of like shocking moment of, of like of, of a violent end to a character that we just got to know, that we just started to see as not just a, 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 a character or a person in a movie, but like as a, as a human being that has motivations behind what they do, that has so much to offer this world. And like, that's it. That's where they wind up that that bank scene is
2: uh upon revisit you know a, a real favorite of mine uh speaking of the sort of like droll comedy there's an there's an amazing line uh when he puts them he takes his money and he's like uh, you understand i have to lock you in the vault uh and and you know our guy responds uh, Perfectly understandable in your position. (laughs) And then they just get locked in there, you know, and he's like, oh, can I smoke? They're like running out of oxygen. He just wants to smoke. (laughs) But uh, I got a shout out. You know, of course, I am uh, the son of a fire sprinkler engineer. And uh, despite the fact that the bank is going completely out of business and has no functional alarms or anything, it does have fire sprinklers and the teller pops it gets the alarm and then of course, you know, they're out, you know, with a cut, but then he's thrown in jail for not having a name.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and didn't they say that the bank was sold to North Korea or something yes. like that? Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's this it's it's actually like a running gag in Kurosaki films. I was pondering uh in Drifting Clouds. It's like Katie Otunan works at a restaurant and the manager's like uh, yeah, we've been sold, you know, like I kept trying to talk to the owner, but he was always at lunch, you know, it's like these, these are, there's always like a, like an absent owner, you know, yeah. like, in mm. you know, all these like businesses that are always like affecting people. And so here it's like, yeah, where's the bank's owner? And I think she even is like, oh, he's like dead, you yeah.
0: know, like he's gone. He's, he's gone. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the thing in, in so many of his, like in, in, in his almost like because a lot of Karstomaki is is this kind of very, like to me, yeah, like deadpan droll Kafka-esque kind of world, you know, where where there is no one behind the curtain, right? Where, where characters go on searches for something, for grand meaning, for a purpose. Hey, if we can just get this thing, then then we get to advance to the next level. But people are always thwarted, right? Because yeah. people just aren't there. <laughs> they're not where they're supposed to be. No one knows who's in fucking charge. I mean, even getting arrested by the cops, you know, it's like the cops just sort of run Run out of steam, you know. They, they, there's no, there's no, there's nothing behind what they're really trying to do. I mean, it's just this, this sort of like vague authority that people adhere to, and yet, like this whole vague Christian thing, like there is no God, you know. There's just people like sort of referencing a God that no one can find anywhere. I like at a certain
2: point that the the Finnish cops just like, you know, they they have really no reason to hold them, and he's like. You're not Finnish. Like we're gonna hold you for like not
1: being Finnish. Yeah. He's like, I'm finished. What are you talking about?
2: And they're like, you could have learned the language, you know, like accusing him or whatever. Well but they
1: like say he doesn't look Finnish. I'm like, that guy looks pretty yeah, Finnish. he looks oh, the yeah. most Finnish. Map of Finland yeah. on that face, yeah, you know, for sure.
0: <laughs> and then, then again, talking about another like Great side supporting character who helps our guy.
2: Salvation Army lawyer. Salvation
0: (laughs) Army lawyer who shows up, dude, like that guy. I had to look him up
2: because I was like, this seems really specific. Because, like, he has a very. I don't know, he's like, he's, he's talking very odd, you know, to to my ear. And mm-hmm. I'm like, this guy seems like a real guy. And wouldn't you know it, he was uh, a famous politician and lawyer in Finland with, like, the Green Party and Greenpeace. And Whoa. so uh, he comes in uh and basically just, like, has, you know, is playing, like, legal tennis with the cop. They're just citing the law, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh Talking about no one being in charge. These guys just, like, spit. Spinning out these interpretations of these
0: statutes, yeah. the you cop know? gets the book out at a certain point. It's just like fi- like rifling through the pages, dude. Yeah, amazing. And then for his gets troubles, the cig- <laughs> he gets the like, cigar. He gets him out. He just hands him a cigar, you know. And it's of course, yeah,
2: that's like the punchline. He's like, "The Salvation Army sent me,"
1: and then he just like pieces out, you know, leaving him with the cigar. It was so funny. That cigar, like I. It took me a minute to realize that was a case for the cigar. I thought it was just like a fucking giant cigar. Huge. Because cigar, yeah. yeah, the like plastic case around it emulates the look of a cigar. And I was thinking, I'm like, that cigar would go perfect with the lighter from the Chabrol <laughs> film, you know?
2: Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. But yeah, it, it had me thinking too, because there's a scene in uh, Peck on the cheek. Uh, you got me confused. I, fu- I fucked, you everybody fucked everybody up, on him, dude. <laughs> Peck yeah, without in, a cheek. In, there's a scene in pack in back on the cheek uh, with Dr. Harold who's their guide uh, in Sri Lanka but problematically he's Sinhalese uh, which sort of like comes up or whatever but he has a nice stroll you know uh, before they're almost kidnapped by uh, the Tamil Tigers uh, they're, they're walking through this field and, and Dr. Harold's like soliloquizing about how uh, no one wins in, in guerrilla war- warfare but no one loses either and the commercial interest you know yeah. the unseen commercial interests and in countries that sell all these other you know organizations militaries, weapons yeah. like Russia, the United yeah, States where are they you know like um, so we see we see the absent sort of like power in, in both films you know
0: in these helpless sort of scenarios. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to highlight that, they do then just get set upon by the, <laughs> the, the armed guerrillas, you know, yeah. as if on cue. But Thiru,
2: <laughs> aka Indira, aka not his wife, uh, you know, saves his own ass by like reciting Tamil poetry because he also is Tamil, you know. So, uh, and then of course, like some of these soldiers are like,
1: boss, he's the famous
2: writer. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was wondering <laughs> that actually, was he reciting his own or was he just no i think it's like i think he
2: was reciting
1: like popular well known tamil poetry yeah national myth shit that makes way more sense but i was thinking i'm like is this guy like have that much clout in the community. Is that the idea yeah, that they're they, they all, getting he here? He because in, he has that India much reference.
2: knowledge that he knows like what poem to throw out to right, these guys right. to be like, I'm one of you, you know, mm-hmm. Even though, is he?
0: He's know? definitely not. <laughs> yeah.
1: That sequence yeah. was wild because that one was definitely explicitly referencing thin red line in its visual style when it was like moving through the grass they, mm-hmm. I feel like that there was a lot of that throughout the film. You could tell that his camera was very expressive because he was seeing, you know, other areas where it was being expressed in such a way, and it fit in with all the different genres. I feel like that oh. film specifically was brought into the mix. Yeah, only three years oh. after, yeah. Oh yeah,
0: I mean, there's so many visual cues that that seem to come like directly from uh, how Malik approaches, you know, the the collision between mm-hmm. like death and 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 nature life and you know destruction and all those kinds of things and like a lot of the sweeping kind of shots of of nature of the ocean and and I think even the shifts from like a sort of like real grounded like present to these almost like dream sequences or or recollections or fantasies, like the musical numbers and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, you know. Because again, in like Thin Red Line, it's like characters just sitting in a trench and then suddenly twirling in a in a in a like a golden ocean at magic
1: hour, you know. Right. Very very much uh, on that same level here. Man, that Doctor Harold, what a character he he said some really questionable stuff. I mean, there's a lot of questionable stuff tossed around in this movie. But I think about when he's saying goodbye to them and he's like waving them goodbye on the bus. And he says to Aman, who he's like, hey, come, you know, come see me in 10 years and we'll get married. Yes, you and me. (laughs) (laughs) And he like kind of means it.
0: (laughs) Dude, there's a few there's a few moments of like much older men making cracks like that. That
1: happens in the beginning
0: too. At Like the wedding. There's like a an old ass uncle who's just like to, to one of the young girls in the wedding party. Like, Hey, you know, cause they're like, Oh, still single or whatever. And then he's like, well, when you tell your daughter to come see me in 10 years, you know? And it's again, I'm like, I think he's very serious. I don't think he's joking. On that.
1: No, no, no. I was surprised at how blunt some of it was. I mean, even at the very beginning when they're getting married and it's an arranged marriage and She's like, do you even know what my name is? <laughs> you know? And then right away there, too, even there's, like, colorism involved. There's prejudice, you know? She's often being remarked, Shaima, Amudha's mother, yeah. about how dark her skin is. And the same thing for Amudha, where people comment, like, yeah, your skin's much darker than the rest of your family. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was at first kind of like,
0: is this being played for laughs or is the guy supposed to be a fucking prick? Because I'm like, this guy's a goddamn fucking asshole, like, for talking about this shit. You right. Know? On your wedding night. <laughs> Yeah, on your wedding night of all (laughs) fucking nights. Did you expect this film to
2: have a commando raid?
1: No, not necessarily. (laughs) Well... It did. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Whether you like it or not, you know?
0: Yes. Yeah, 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 it certainly does. Again, a great way to, a great way to kick off the next 100, right? With a film that unexpectedly shifts from, you know, high school musical to family melodrama to, uh, a child soldier commando raid on the, I'm assuming the Indian Peacekeeping Force, or I'm not quite sure. Yeah, but. I'm
2: not sure who's actually commando raiding who, yeah. you know, because they're trying to, you know, meet her mother, M.D. Shama. But she doesn't show up, and all of a sudden, like, the army is just encircling the park. Yeah, yeah. While she's throwing
0: her little hissy fit, as Ryan said, you know, and right. they're kind of like, look, uh, the, the atmosphere is getting kind of tense. We should uh, we should get the fuck out of here. You know, the doctor especially is like, this is bad, bad news. And sure enough, uh, he was right because, well, oh, my God, again, talk about a shift. Like the violence of that action sequence I was not prepared for. It's like just suddenly they cut to like a shot of some soldier who gets shot in the head and there's just blood like spraying out of his fucking helmet dude. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like juxtaposing in my mind that image
1: to her like singing and dancing in the high school in the
0: beginning of the right. movie. Yeah like,
1: you have like watching that high school musical dance number you never have the expectation that later in the film someone will have a fu- fucking blood hose rigged inside their helmet to, like, show a waterfall (laughs) of a wound near the end. Yeah, I mean, there are two scenes with, like... Uh, you know Amuda
2: having like glass or like shrapnel picked out of her, you <laughs> yeah, know, like yeah. not just one, right? The suicide bombing and the 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 raid on the park.
0: You yeah, know yeah. Like, Cause her, you
1: th- her adopted mom gets shot. Yeah. Exactly. You, know? <laughs> you think like Jeez. maybe there won't be consequences if they're just this family that's wandering into an active war zone. But no right away it's like, yeah, you're gonna throw this little tantrum here while the army, you know, descends <laughs> upon us. Your mom's gonna get shot and that's why it was it was remarkable to them that they decide after that you know i guess it's the idea that lightning doesn't strike twice in the exact same right. spot but they do decide let's go back you know like after they've had their wounds tended to and they plan to return to india they decide let's let's return and just see if my real mother will show up and the adopted mother agrees she's like i think it's time maybe we just don't get out of the car you know if we see a soldier we'll we'll bail but they do yeah, go we'll back. Just keep driving. <laughs> yeah, which is amazing
2: because I had just written in my notes learning the hard way why it's not cool to chill in Sri Lanka and then they just go back <laughs> to the park and then yes the big uh, melodramatic drawn out reunion you know where uh, mother and daughter meet and yeah it just like I don't mean this in a bad way but it goes on forever you oh, know yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. that's
1: like that's, <laughs> that's when Indian cinema is at its best when it can yeah. sustain a melodramatic right. moment like that and it never dampens or disappears. That scene goes on for I think 15 minutes long. Yeah, it's a very, very long sequence. And you keep thinking it's hitting its peaks. And then, you know, just when you think it can't get any more intense, you know, when the mother decides to leave, you know, Amuda just reaches her arms out and she's like, Mother, please just hold me one last time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you're like, Oh my god. Yes. Yeah, I wrote "Turn
2: on the rain machine." They do. They
0: fucking. They sure should do. On a very sunny day, suddenly that rain is pouring down.
2: Did you guys catch too? There's a really great meta gag where uh, Amuda's got her, her sort of like prepared diary that she's going to give to her mother. And it's got like photos of her from, from her first nine years. And she's like pointing them out. And it's like, oh, it's a photo with A.R. Rahman, which is like the guy who did the music mm-hmm. for this, for
1: like all the many <laughs> yep. random movies. Oh, like,
2: So just tying it in, you know, a that picture was really with the nice. composer. You know? I mean, like,
1: I, I'm not <laughs> trying to diminish the moment too, but Molly and I. Exploded with laughter when they're like, "Okay, like you know, Amuta prepared twenty questions for you that she she would like to ask you, and she you know she opens up this cute little piece of paper, and you know the mother is the the, the biological mother is you know very emotionally wrought and feeling intense, and Amuta just reads the first question: Why did you leave me behind? Like <laughs>
2: yeah, question you gotta ramp number up one. It's like holy shit. Kids have no tap dude. Yeah, you know? not
1: just like, oh, what's your favorite food. Like, what do you do for fun? Just Like, that's question number one. She wants to know the real shit,
2: you know? Yeah.
1: I'm like, what are the other 19 questions going to be?
2: Just as I certainly didn't expect, uh, you know, this movie to uh, sort of peak with a commando raid, uh, I think one of the great unexpected moments, of course, in Man Without a Past is when uh, he finally, you know, learns... uh, who he who he was, um, and he learns that he has a name, Jaco Antero Lujanin, and he, you know, he ventures back to to meet his his ex wife as we. T- you know mentioned before uh and and in the middle of the scene this this guy just sort of like enters the room uh and of course you know the minute he shows up you're like oh that's her boyfriend you know uh and this guy has like a really great bit turn because he uh, is expecting a fight and they share a cigarette outside he's kind of like trying to build up the courage to like fight our guy. I mean, he
0: flat out says, yeah. like, should we fight? Like, I mean, I don't really know the protocol here. You know? Yeah.
2: And then, you know, the man without a past is, uh, is obviously like, uh, no nah, man, it's it's cool. Yeah. For what? He hits know? the train, he has the cigar, he goes back, you know, to, to where he was where he was just chilling, uh, finds everyone from the movie, you know, at the local bar watching the Salvation Army band walks off into the moonlight with his with his lady you
0: know yeah like i said man that 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 bump on the noggin is the best thing that ever happened (laughs) to this guy
1: really i'm looking back at my notes to see like oh is there anything i missed that i wanted to highlight from man without a past and my final note is just train sushi yes (laughs) and i did really like that yeah He's got the sake too, yeah. yeah.
0: Dude, at, at first I was like, man, that's what? I was like, what an oddball kind of like thing to I mean, it's of course, Maki, right? It's, it's like what an oddball thing to be like served on this train. But then I was thinking, like, Finland, man, they probably got great sushi up there. Really oh, yeah. good seafood up there, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah, it is. It is. You know,
2: uh, it's a fairy tale right i think that's even again like the, the lyrics of the song uh my dreams often take me back to that leafy fairyland you know? <laughs> what uh, oh man classic yeah just uh you know he's one of those filmmakers who makes kind of like somewhat feel-good movies and i and i never feel like they're like cynical you know yeah and they're also not like
0: pandering
2: right exactly because yeah, it does like you know not all his movies and and like this one, but uh, yeah, it's, it's nice, you
1: know. Yeah, and yeah, and conversely, Mani Ratnam makes feel everything movies, <laughs> and yeah. and um, then he leaves
2: us hanging, dude, because you know this isn't the end of this rebirth. You know, It's imagine only the what. Yeah, imagine what happens in the second pack on the cheek. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I, I know what happens. <laughs> they, they, the, the, the Tamils get wiped out to a man. The Tigers get fucking. That's murked. true. I, yeah, I suppose only
2: <laughs>
1: seven. Yeah, seven years later. Yeah,
0: I know what happens to Shyama. I'll tell you what. You know.
1: Yeah. Well, I- interestingly enough, um, let me quickly pull this up. I believe. <laughs> yet there's. Oh my God, that can't be correct. There's, there's a TV show. This this film has been turned... I should have double-checked this because it says there's 270 episodes. Sure. Holy fuck. So it's like a soap opera. After her mother's death... Adhira learns to understand the importance of relationships when she interacts with her stepmother. Spin-off. Yeah, in terms of what happens next, there is a television show with 270 episodes that is currently airing right now. It says it started in 2022, and it's got 270 episodes. Already? And it's about her as a teenager with her mother. Presumably, like it's the same... an episode every day. Characters. <laughs> yeah, I know. The old soap <laughs> method. Yeah. I'm just looking at the numbers in front of me. Yeah, I... Sounds wild, so we'll have to investigate that wow. too. I guess. I'm Sure, that's yeah, dramatic. Yeah, you can report back on that. Yeah, no, yeah, I, pro- I probably won't spend too much time there, but um, I would encourage you know everyone listening and and both of you as well, Marsh. I know you've seen Nyakon, but um, definitely check out the cinema of Mani Ratnam. It's well, a-
2: dude, I really I really want to see Thiruda Thiruda because that's got like heist shit in it.
1: You mm, know, early yeah, yeah.
2: early nineties. I've got it. You know, uh, on deck.
1: Hell yeah. Hell yeah! But yeah, I guess you know. I hope you you feel reborn, Andy. Episode yeah. one hundred and one. I certainly do. And uh, yeah, I guess when you think about the idea of rebirth, genesis, new beginnings in cinema, what's what's a film that you think fits that theme?
0: Well, I mean, I guess it's 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 uh, it's very appropriate that uh, the the specter of death loomed very large over both of the films that you folks brought this week in our in our exploration of of rebirth i think that that's a a very uh that's a that's a that's a common element and i think ideas of cinematic rebirth is, you know, something has to die in order for it to be born again. So um, interestingly enough, the, the, the film that I was thinking, we, we sort of uh, tangentially, or at least the filmmaker, we kind of tangentially mentioned. And I think partly because I was watching Korsmaki that I was reflecting on Jim Jarmusch and specifically the movie, Dead Man, which I think is in certain respects, like has a lot of similarities to Man Without a Past, you know? Johnny Depp's character walks into this town, you know, or sort of just just arrives at this strange place and then meets his death and is reborn by nobody, his Native American spirit guide, played by Gary Farmer. And you know, in the 100th episode, you were reflecting on like Graham Greene and and we love Graham Greene but man Gary Farmer another uh Native American actor I I think deserves a lot of credit because he is awesome and I think Dead Man might be his 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 greatest performance ever uh and yeah I I love that movie I think that's a it's a great movie that now that's that's a very blessed double feature Dead Man and Man Without a Past oh yeah Uh, maybe too obvious but
1: but a really good pairing right there yeah I I love Dead Man and it was really interesting revisiting it like 2 years ago or so because that movie's relationship with the American landscape is fascinating because yeah. his his road trip quote unquote he's at one point he'll be in the Northwest, suddenly he's in the Southwest, then he's in Montana, mm-hmm. then he's in California. Like, And it feels intentional. It never, it it's turns like the American landscape into this like mythic space where geography doesn't matter and climate doesn't matter. He's just like bouncing around.
2: So cool. Well, thank you, Andy, for your geneses. Um Next week, uh, Ryan will be
1: overseas. Yes. That's where I'll be. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, you know, hot
2: off the uh, Gauntlet 100, yeah. we uh, have Alex Sherman yeah. filling in for Ryan next episode. Guest starring,
1: right, Ryan? Guest starring, Alex yeah. Sherman, this is yes. a Yeah, this is a guest star <laughs>
2: spot contractually. Uh, and he's here with us right now to uh, drop the topic uh, on us.
3: Okay. Well, um, I was thinking about the other episodes that I had been on, and thinking about the topics, uh, pals, and no parents, no rules, and the pics that they inspired, and I was dwelling on the the aspect that in both cases, the topics. Not gendered whatsoever, both um, led to us watching all four films about girls and women. And so I'm jumping to the conclusion that I'm bringing a kind of feminine energy to the pod. And so we're gonna, you know, go in a different direction this week from the existential ideas of Genesis. And next week, it's ladies' night. All right.
2: What are you seeing in uh, Portugal? Well,
3: it's know? actually
1: very funny. Uh, Nabil has Hopefully been Hopefully nothing, you know. No, we are going to a film together at the Cinemateca. Well, they are showing a 35 millimeter print of no, or the Vainglory of the Command. Um, it's not subtitled. So I don't know if we'll actually do it, but it's either that or we're uh, what we're most likely going to see. And it's been very funny thinking about. I'll be in Lisbon seeing a movie called Texasville. They're showing a print of the Bogdanovich Last Picture Show sequel. So maybe we can
2: finally do our new Hollywood sequels episode. You know, when when you come back. (laughs) <laughs> well, have fun. Thank you. Know. you. Good luck sailing and uh, ladies' night next week. You're going sailing? No. no. Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> He's taking a cruise
2: liner over to... As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at
1: gmail.com. Thanks,
3: everyone. Go to the Kuinka? Ette ole maksat. Minkä parkeetelle? Minä. Nakata parikreelle. Sele persoon luvankas. Niinhän te luulee. Jälj suurta vombi. Vulepain. Kyllä.
2: Tappas.
0: Pahastuiluun. Tehän olette
2: röökkä. Sutta pui.
3: Eikä ole. Hehehehe. Hei, hei, I'm not going i
1: here is, I need them to approach. I am... already I am